Well, I'm excited and humbled uh, to begin a new series with you today, walking through the first letter of the Apostle Peter to the church. As we will see, First Peter puts first things first, that being our salvation. And even more than salvation being first, we will see that God is first in salvation. We begin today with the first nine verses of the book. But before we read our text, let me spend a moment on some of the background of this inspired letter, which God has preserved in Scripture over these roughly 2,000 years. Let's think about the who, what, and why of this book, starting with the human author, which again is obviously Peter. Most of you know that Peter is one of the 12 disciples who spent three years following Jesus. If you wanted to review just exactly who Peter had been, Before writing his first letter, you could read Matthew's gospel, or if you have less time, Mark's. Either way, you might be surprised at how central Peter really is to the gospel narrative. Second to Jesus, the gospels focus on Peter more than anyone else. Beyond this, the first 12 chapters of the book of Acts feature Peter as the first and most obvious leader of the fledgling church. As a side point, I think this is mostly what Jesus meant when he renamed Peter and said, on this rock... I will build my church. I do think there are multiple meanings in that part of the narrative, and some would say Jesus was referring to the faith of Peter as being the rock, which is likely part of it. But I think this was also a practical statement, and the fact is that, humanly speaking, Peter is the one who really got the first church started. In other words, Peter was the first church planter, which makes him my number one hero in all of the Bible with Paul, of course, a close second. It really is true that Peter is my favorite because, after all, I see a lot of myself in Peter, and in case you didn't realize it, I like myself. (laughs) All joking aside, I can't be the only one here who likes Peter for the same reason, as I think we really do see ourselves, both good and bad, in him. This is by God's design. For my part, I'm the guy who tries to walk on water, but I'm also the guy who sinks. At any rate, Peter is someone with whom most of us can readily identify, and honestly, I think this is precisely why Peter was chosen by Christ. He is the common man. In many ways, Peter represents us all. What's amazing isn't so much how he started out, but who he became. Seeing this through his first letter to the church can inspire us all. Now, if Peter is the author, who is the audience? Well, as Pastor Connor expressed last Sunday, ultimately we are the audience of every single verse of Scripture because God inspired the Bible and kept it for our benefit. But who was the original audience? The first verse of our text will tell us, but let me sum up what it says in advance and explain that these specific places are located in Asia Minor. And Peter is writing to the churches in five of the Roman provinces located in that area. We would find this region today in the country of Turkey, and specifically to the north of the Taurus Mountains. More importantly, when it comes to the original audience, we should be aware that these churches consisted mostly of Gentiles like us, not Jewish believers like Peter. And we know this both historically and from the text. For example, in chapter 2, verses 9 and 10, Peter makes it clear that these folks have only recently been brought into the family of God rather than having always been a part of it as had been the case with the Jews. The fact that this inspired letter is written mostly to Gentiles like us will have many important connotations. For instance, in the fact that we Gentile believers are said here in the opening to have been elected or chosen just as the Jews had been, and yet we also see that just as they had a choice to make, so do we. Most everyone knows that the Jews were chosen, but did the Jews have a choice? Oh, yes, they did. And one of their biggest problems as a people was in not understanding that. Prophets all the way through John the Baptist and Jesus made it clear that ethnic Jews did not actually prove to have been chosen by default or automatically, but instead only by faith. In other words, to be chosen, it always also required a choice. I do believe that. One who does not choose Christ is not chosen. Some of you are thinking, oh, you just had to get that in there right off the top, didn't you, Pastor? And yes, I suppose I did. 
Another thing about the audience we can see in the opening text is that they were to think of themselves as exiles. This is interesting in the fact that physically speaking, these people were not exiles at all. These folks had lived right where they were living all of their lives. Peter uses this term and other synonyms for the same idea throughout his book. And I do like the ESV translation on this word, which is probably the main reason I chose it for this series. Not only that, but I just want to do something different. You know, I usually use the NASB. I don't know. I like this opening in the ESV, so I said, I'm going to do this one in the ESV. But I like it that they use the word exiles to reference believers. It helps us realize that we Christians ought to be thinking of ourselves as being in a similar kind of situation to that of the Jews during their exile from Judah. In other words, this ain't the promised land, y'all, right? We're exiles. This theme of living life as elect exiles, as it says, is woven throughout 1 Peter, and we'll find the idea to be quite relevant and more so every year that passes between now and the return of Christ. This world is not our home. We don't belong here. We are indeed elect exiles living in a hostile land. We should expect exactly what we're getting from the world, and the more we follow Christ, the more we will get it. And even more than this is we come closer to the end. By the way, if you're looking for a new way to express your Christianity, you could say that you are an elect exile, just as Peter refers to us in his opening. And then you could explain what this means when someone asks. We are E-squared, elect exiles. By the way, have you ever noticed that the I love you kind of becomes an E if you turn it to the side. Yeah, it's three prongs just like an E. E squared, elect exile. Seems like it ought to be a t-shirt or something. I don't know. Somebody go ahead and uh, make that if you really feel so inclined. Maybe a band name. Want to start a band? Elect exiles. I like it. I like it. Now, for just a little bit more background before we read the opening, let me point out that later in the text, it becomes pretty clear that Peter is writing from Rome. And we know that Babylon uh, had become a code word for Rome in Christian circles. And so later in the book, chapter 5, verse 13, he mentions that he's writing from Babylon. Something you might want to remember uh, as you're reading other New Testament passages, generally when Babylon is mentioned in the New Testament, that's code for Rome and the Roman government. So again, this relates to the idea of being exiled since the Jews had been exiled to Babylon centuries earlier, and since Rome was more and more hostile toward Christianity. So, Peter is writing from Rome to an area within Western Asia, and also notice that he's doing so in a very pastoral way, likely having had something to do with the founding of these churches. According to one early church historian, Eusebius, that is exactly the case. Peter had helped plant these churches to whom he is writing. What will be amazing to us is to find out just how much a specific letter written by a specific person to a specific people still applies perfectly to us even 2,000 years later. Let's read our text for today, the first nine verses. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ. Now, let me just pause here long enough to point out that God is three in one. Our word for this is Trinity. People say the word Trinity is not in the Bible, and that's true. But what this word means about God is consistently found throughout Scripture. Our God is three in one, Father, Son, and Spirit. And here it is as plain as day, according to the Father, in the Spirit, to Jesus Christ, right here at the start. This is the Trinity, and this is the God of the Bible. Reading on. And for sprinkling with His blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, 
Though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen Him, you love Him. Though you do not now see Him, you believe in Him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Now, we could probably pull several thesis statements out of that passage, but I'll go with this one for today. To keep the change, we must be changed first. I don't claim that as being all that profound at all, but it does tie my series title into my sermon title, while more importantly expressing one of the main points of the text. To keep the change, we must actually be changed by God first. See, the book of 1 Peter is quite a bit about keeping changes, particularly in the face of persecution. Peter simply does not allow for a stagnant Christian or certain, certainly for an ex-Christian or anything of that nature. Specifically, Peter will show us that persecution will prove or disprove the reality of a person's faith. But another way to say it is what I've said, to keep the change, you must actually be changed first. Now, let's break this down into five points. And um, actually, I think it's going to wind up being six. Uh, we'll have to cover this message in two parts, uh, unless you don't want lunch. I figured that, yeah. We'll cover the first three points today. And by the way, also note that many of these themes will be repeated. Uh, so if you're just dying for more on any of these, uh, more will be coming as we grow through the book. Let's get into it. How is it that we must first be changed? Well, it all begins right where Peter begins. And this is point one, that God chooses us. God chooses us. Look at the first two verses again. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God, the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for sprinkling with His blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Now, we could do a whole sermon on each phrase in this opening, but I think those sermons will come out as we walk through the book. So for right now, I want to focus your attention onto the phrases I have underlined because it is very, very important that we put first things first. I've already mentioned that we are elect exiles. We are elect and we are exiles. What does it mean to be part of this group? To be elected is to be chosen. In fact, my usual translation, the NSB, uses the word chosen here, but regardless, the original Greek word means called out ones. To be clear, by God's choice, we are chosen. By God's election, we are elected. To what? Salvation. Ultimately, it says here, sprinkling with His blood. Well, that's exactly what this means. When you become a child of God by grace through faith in Christ, that means that you've been chosen or elected to salvation by God. If you know Jesus, you were chosen by God. And before you go off on a tangent of concern for what this may mean for others, just stay with me for a moment and feel the weight of the fact that you have been chosen by God. This truth is so very clear and repeatedly stated in the Bible. God knew you would be His. He knew you before you were born. And so He came after you, fellow believer. You may think that you were seeking after God, but if you were, that was only because He was calling. And now let me get even more radical for some of your ears. God does not choose everyone in this way. Notice I did not say there is no opportunity for everyone to be saved. Listen, if you know me, you know I believe with all my heart that salvation is provided for all, available to all, a possibility for all, though not all will receive it. That said, God does not actually choose everyone. Listen, if all are elected, that would take away the meaning of so many verses like these, verses where we find that we're chosen by God. Ultimately, if everyone is chosen, that's the heresy of universalism. Now, at this moment, people on one end of the theological spectrum are mostly loving me, except for the part where I said it's available to all, but they do love the chosen part. 
And yet those same people are going to hate me in just a minute while others of you start loving me. So if everyone will just hang in there, all of you will likely be mad at me. Just give it time. (laughs) Because most of us try to work this conundrum out by firmly standing on one side or the other, and we have our points and our uh, books to back it up, but not me. Why don't I stand firmly on one side of the theological spectrum? Because I don't like to have friends? No. Because I see a tension in Scripture between some of these truths, and I see that there's a mystery to it, and I try very hard to rest in that mystery. That being said, I do think a tiny bit of that mystery can be understood through the next phrase I have underlined in our text, which is this, according to the foreknowledge of God. You see that there? We are elected according to the foreknowledge of God. If it's not that clear there, we can look at Romans 8.29. But in the NSB right here, it says we are chosen. If you look in the NSB, it says literally, we are chosen according to foreknowledge. Those, those words in that order. We are chosen according to foreknowledge. I think what we have here is the why. Why are we chosen? Why are some elected to salvation and others not elected? One side of the theological spectrum, I suppose, would have to say there is no reason. Maybe that's not what they would say, but when I hear them, it feels like that's what they're saying. That it can't be based on anything we ever do or even, even anything we ever believe or anything about us at all. So that would mean God's choice is arbitrary, not based on anything that we can know or understand. He just picks who He wants for no definable reason, just because He's God, and that's it. But friends, I have never been able to see that as the overarching message of the Bible. Now, by the way, if you have surmised that you're on the other side of where I'm standing, and you wouldn't say it in those words, and maybe that means I'm not talking about you, so don't write me and email me and tell me how I've misrepresented you, because if this isn't you, then you're not the one I'm representing. Thank you, Bill. He knows. He knows. There are nuances on every side of the spectrum. That's why it is a spectrum. But I do know that some say God's choice is completely arbitrary, or at least that it is not based on anything about us whatsoever, not even our faith. What we all agree on is that God's choice is not based on works. All right? We all agree on that. He doesn't look ahead and see that you're going to be a good person and therefore pick you. The Bible is very, very clear on that. God does not choose you based on anything you will or will not do. We see this carefully explained in Romans 9 and many other places, and so that much is common ground. But does that mean there is no reason and that there can be no reason behind God's choice. Well, what I have come to believe, not from reading books, but from reading the Bible, is that God's election is based on His foreknowledge of one very specific thing, that being our faith. You've heard of unconditional election. Well, I believe in one conditional election, that condition being faith in Christ. Some of you don't like that. John MacArthur would not like that because he and many others believe election is unconditional and faith comes after. Well, for me, our text today happens to be one of the places where I believe God is saying that foreknowledge of faith is somehow and in some way the basis of our election. Romans 8, 29, parallel verse says, those whom God foreknew, He also predestined. That's what it says. Those whom God foreknew, He also predestined. Those whom he knew but would be his ahead of time, he also predestined or pre-chose to be conformed to the image of Christ, the result of salvation. We must at least ask, what did God foreknow about us? Related to being elected or chosen, I think God foreknew that we would have faith, that we would put our faith and our trust in Christ. If there's one thing I believe is clear in Scripture, it is that faith is a conduit to which we receive, by which we receive the grace of God. Ephesians 2, Romans 5, so many other passages show the grace of salvation coming to us through our faith. So, a lot rests on faith, doesn't it? I believe so, and I think Peter and Paul thought so 
as well. And yet, back and forth. As we think back to the point that God chooses us, hear me say also that I don't believe faith is a decision we can make with absolutely no involvement from God. No, I believe our faith must be empowered by God. No one comes to the Father unless the Spirit draws him. And yet to further clarify, I do not believe that our faith is in any way forced. Nor do I believe that we are regenerated before we have faith. And in fact, on that point, I have very strong feelings. So there's your warning. If anyone is confused on the order of salvation, look at our text today, or you could also look at Ephesians 1.13 for a very concise description of how it works. God draws us and sends us the gospel. We respond with faith in Christ. He saves with grace and transformation. It's as simple as that. So again, what of this foreknowledge in our text? Does it simply mean God looked into the future and saw who would choose faith, and so He was sort of forced to choose those people? Is it that basic? No. I think foreknowledge means more than that. I think it means that God keeps His promise by choosing those who respond in real time at that moment, but that He also knows who that will be all along because He is God, which means there's no way He could not know. How could God not know who will be saved? Of course He knows. The Bible tells us He knows, and in that very sense, He knows that He will choose them. That makes them chosen. See, I believe we're chosen or predestined or elected precisely because God knows about our faith. But to say that He knows because He already predestined it and for no other reason, not even because of faith, well, that's just not what the Bible says here. It seems to me that it says His election or His choice is actually based somehow on His foreknowledge according to to his foreknowledge, to be precise, and that progression can be seen in several passages. So, the centuries-old debate rages on. But can we really even put into words how a timeless God sees things or how He does things? To be clear, the doctrinal statement we have adopted as a church holds these things in tension. That is to say that we believe both God's choice and man's choice are clearly upheld in Scripture, whether we can understand it or not. If you want to try to understand it, though, just like me with your little pea brain, I would point you toward foreknowledge as the potential key to understanding. Either that or you can simply accept that both are true in humility and just let it be. I think that's a perfectly acceptable position. Now, I am aware that some of you are utterly lost to this current discussion, and I apologize. Ignorance may well be bliss on this one. Only please do not be ignorant of the fact that you are chosen by God. That is important. Others of you have some knowledge of the topic, and you're trying to figure out, okay, is this guy a Calvinist or an Arminian? To which I will tell you the answer is no. I'm neither. If you must have a label, I'm a Baptist, all right? You got to have something. I'm a Baptist. You might as well just get over it. What kind of Baptist? The Billy Graham kind, okay? If you happen to know who Adrian Rogers is, maybe Charles Stanley, not so much the other one. I'm that kind of Baptist. And that's all I have to say about it right now. I know. This is the stuff that made Peter say that Paul could sometimes be hard to understand. But what is very, very clear, both in our text and throughout the Bible, folks, is that God chooses us. He chose you. We are the elect. We are chosen by God. Don't be afraid to say it, even if, like me, you are not a five-point Calvinist. We are chosen. We are special in His eyes. We are the elect. That's who we are. But one last time, I must ask, why? See, this is the question that nobody is asking. Why are we chosen? Is there any reason at all 
Is it random? Is it completely arbitrary? I would say no. I would say God sees the simple childlike faith of the few, and that is why He chooses them. He chose Abraham because of faith. He chooses us for the same reason. Another way to say it is that God simply asks that we believe, and when we do, in the present we become chosen, and in the past it's as if we were already chosen because of the foreknowledge of God. Listen, repentant faith is all God asks of people in order to be forgiven and to be brought into His chosen family. What are the last two verses of our text today? Though you have not seen Him, you love Him. That's about faith. Though you do not now see Him, you believe in Him. Faith. And rejoice with joy that is inexpressible, filled with glory. Obtaining the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. What is the outcome of our faith? The outcome of believing in Him, even though we cannot see the salvation of our souls. Again, the outcome of our faith is salvation. And remember, there's a few verses before this. We're told that we are the elect chosen by God. Is faith not the reason for His choice? Is faith not the conduit of salvation? Is salvation not the definition of election? Is election possible without salvation? Is salvation possible without faith? I think not. Regardless of the mesmerizing circles of this never-ending debate, the one thing I want you to hang on to is this. You did not choose God first. He came to you. How does that work together with our faith and our choice? There's a certain amount of mystery to that. But regardless, what an incredible thing to know and understand that we are chosen by God. Did we not all sing it? Because He first loves me all those years. The second point I would make from our text is this. God regenerates us. Verse 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. All right, so I'm using the word regenerates as a synonym for being born again in our text, mostly because it's too hard to say God borns us again or something like that. But please understand that these are interchangeable terms, both used in Scripture. What we are talking about here is actually being made a new creature from the inside out, 2 Corinthians 5, 17, being born again, which is basically to be recreated, or as I've said, regenerated, that is spiritually resurrected. And so we're talking about salvation, being snatched from the kingdom of darkness and placed within the kingdom of light, having our names written in the Lamb's book of life. By the way, who writes it? God. Receiving the promise of eternity with Christ. It says in the previous verse, obtaining for yourselves the salvation of your souls. This is simply what it means to be born again or regenerated, to have your soul saved. Now look again at verse 2, just before this, where it says we obtain the outcome through our faith. Whose faith? Our faith. That is what it says. So the faith is yours. And the result is salvation, or as it says here in the next verse, the result of being born again. What I want you to get today is that this regeneration is caused by God. Only God can save us. He saves us because we cannot possibly in a million years save ourselves. And so to be clear, it is not as though your faith saves you. Well, let me get my thinking cap on that one, Pastor. Let me say it again. Faith does not save you. No, the grace of salvation comes through faith, but faith does not cause you to be born again. Not literally. There may even be verses of Scripture that say faith saves you, but that's not the whole picture of what is actually happening on a deeper level, which comes clear in our text today. See, this truth in God's Word with me today is something we need to get because it's so deeply important. God is the one who causes people to be born again. That's what it says in verse 3. I do believe the Bible is clear that we are born again at the moment we have saving faith. And these two verses indicate as much. But at the same time, do not miss who is causing the salvation even in that moment of faith. Listen, faith does not cause salvation. God causes salvation through faith. 
Look at it with me once more. The Bible says God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, has caused us to be born again. God the Father regenerates us. We do not regenerate ourselves. Not even our faith regenerates us. We absolutely must make a faith decision to trust in Jesus, but that decision does not save us. No, our faith is a conduit through which God works, but He is the one who does the actual saving. And that is vitally important to remember. Why so important? Well, as Paul put it in Ephesians 2.9, so that no one may boast. Who gets the glory for saving you? Do you feel like you did something special or that God did something special? Do I praise myself for receiving a gift of grace, even if my faith is required? No, that would be silly and illogical. Listen, the point is that God causes us to be reborn through our faith. That's the primary message of these three foundational verses of 1 Peter, that God does the work and not we ourselves, that God saves us because He wants to save us. If you're a believer, then God the Father has elected you or chosen you, and He's the very one who has regenerated you by causing you to be born again. Now, some of you may not be familiar with this wording, that it is the phrase being born again. So, let me briefly explain. Where did this strange terminology come from? Well, it came from Jesus, who was talking to Nicodemus, a person who thought he was already saved. This is in John chapter 3, the passage leading up to probably the most famous verse in the Bible, for God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him will not perish, but have everlasting life. Well, leading up to that verse, Jesus was explaining to Nicodemus that he must be born again. He said, because we're born spiritually dead, we need to be born again. Not only of water, but of the Spirit. Not only through the birth canal, as it were, but through a spiritual regeneration that is the very essence of salvation, where one is washed clean, made into a completely new person on the inside, so much so that the Spirit of God can now come and dwell within you. This is what it means to be saved, to be regenerated by God, indeed to have Him cause you to be born again. And it happens through faith, as Jesus explained, for whosoever believes. All right, but what must we believe? Where must our faith be placed in order for God to cause us to be born again through that very faith? Our faith must be placed in the identity and work of Jesus Christ. That is the irreducible minimum of what you must believe so that God will keep His promise and cause you to be born again. You must put your complete and total faith in the Christ who died on the cross and who was resurrected on the third day. As our text makes clear, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope. That's a hope of eternal life through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Why does Peter put it this way? Why does he focus on the resurrection instead of the cross in this spot? By the way, the gospel can honestly be shared around either the cross or the resurrection as can be seen in Scripture because both imply the other. An interesting discussion. But why does Paul focus on the resurrection here? Because he wants to remind us that our rebirth is to life. That we are born again, not to death, or even to more of the temporary life we had before, but rather to eternal life with Christ. See, we were dead spiritually, but now we're born again to life through the one who conquered death, specifically through his resurrection. Because Jesus rose from the dead, the power is there to give us eternal life. We're reborn, spiritually imperishable, and though our bodies will decay temporarily, our spirits will live forever with God because we were indeed born again, resurrected in our souls by an act of God, not left in the emptiness and the spiritual deadness of our first birth. This new birth to life is complete is so complete that one day even our bodies will be resurrected to rejoin our spirits on the last day. This is the gospel. This is the good news. And the most important thing I want you to get today is that the reason it is good is because of God. He's the one who makes it good. Yahweh is the one who saves. We cannot save ourselves. We cannot cause ourselves to be born again. The Lord promises to do that, and He's waiting to do that for you just as soon as you believe enough to actually receive His gift of grace. Some people have faith in faith. Did you know that? Make sure that's not you. When you are sharing your testimony, maybe try to take out a few of the eyes. Get it? 
a few of the eyes. Your testimony about when you were saved should not mostly be I did this and I did that. God is the one who caused you to be born again. Figure out how to talk more about Him. Start and end with God if you're in your testimony instead of yourself. Yes, somewhere in there talk about the day you put your faith in Christ. But start with God choosing you or calling upon you and end with God actually doing the saving work in your heart so much so that because of Him, although you had been dead, you are now alive. This is what we mean by being born again. Now, let me clarify one other thing. If you put your faith in Christ, God will save you. It's not a maybe. It's not if he isn't too mad at you, he might. You should not think of this as being potentially not for you or only for certain people. Now, if you're hearing me, this is for you. The New Testament is filled with whosoever's. Well, in the King James Version, anyway, newer translations usually say whoever or everyone, but I wish they had kept it whosoever. Just communicates the totality of what is meant in those places. Jesus said, whosoever will may come and drink of the living water. That's on the last page of your Bible, and it's clearly about salvation. Whosoever will. In other words, if you want God to cause you to be born again, He's ready and waiting to do that through your faith in Jesus Christ. All right, so I realize that some of you have been thinking, boy, this is awfully theological. And there's, a, there's, there's not a lot of application. Okay, none. Well, I know. I'm aware. Often that's the way it is at the beginning of a book in the Bible. Most books start with theology as the foundation. The application comes later, unless we're talking about the book of Romans, and then it just never comes, but I'm kidding. But <laughs> This week I kept thinking, man, i got to get some application in there, maybe an illustration or a story. I mean, you know, people like that stuff. It keeps their attention, you know. And so I was, I'm always teaching, you know, young, young preachers to major on application. So what about me? Well, I tried and failed. Look for those things later on in the series. We actually even talk about things like marriage later in the series. You've got to lay the foundation. Moving on. Just one more point today, and we'll catch the two, last two points next week. Number three, God keeps us. From verse four, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith, for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. The basis of understanding behind the fact that God keeps us, that He does not let us go, that we cannot lose our salvation, is understanding we did not get it for ourselves in the first place. And so the first two points have as their natural outcome this third point, God keeps us. Again, God chooses us, God regenerates us, and now God keeps us. Now, verse 4 actually says that God keeps not specifically us, but rather our inheritance in heaven. If you think about that, though, this is still a promise to keep us as well. After all, if we're not kept for heaven, then having an inheritance there is pretty useless. So when God says in verse 4 that our inheritance is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, and kept in heaven for us, He's also saying that He will make sure we get there. That is, of course, for those who have been chosen, that is, those who are born again on the basis of faith in Christ. We call this the doctrine of eternal security or perseverance of the saints, and in my view, there can be no equivocation whatsoever on this point. The Bible is abundantly clear that God keeps the elect saved. We are not chosen and then later unchosen. I've covered this many times before, and we'll do so again, I'm sure. I should probably tell you that I have been confronted on this point even recently, this time by someone from another church in town. It's not enough to have to deal with my own people. I got to deal with somebody else's people. I'm just joking. I love you all. Nobody's difficult in this church ever. It's really basically true, honestly. It's amazing. But I got a letter from another guy in another church in town. He believes that in saying such things, as I've been saying about being kept, we're telling people that they can just go on sinning 
and expect to enter heaven when they die. He quoted those passages where we're told that people who never repent of lifestyles of sin, whose lives are more characterized by worldliness than by transformation, will not see the kingdom of heaven. And of course, I completely agree with it on that point. We are simply not saying those folks will go to heaven at all. And so this is what we call a straw man argument. We do not believe that those who go on sinning, who never show in their life that they have been born again, are truly saved. You can listen to my series on the book of James for more on this topic. Faith without works is simply not true faith. But of course, the real controversy comes in how much sin or how little fruit proves that you are not truly born again. In short, this is not something that human beings are equipped to determine. What I can tell you firmly is that if you really and truly believe in Christ and His gospel, then you are really and truly saved. Why are you truly saved? Because God is the one who saves you on the basis of your mustard seed faith, and when God saves people, He does not do it halfway. Where you fall short, He will help you repent and move forward. I could go on all day about this kind of thing, but let me sum up by saying that if you really know Jesus, your life will be filled not only with godly changes, but also with confession and repentance. Because you're not going to be okay with the sin that you inevitably commit. Those who would say, I will go on sinning because my salvation is secure, are simply not truly chosen, not truly born again, and therefore not kept. God does not keep what He never had. Now, for the rest of you, Find the hope in these words that Peter intended. Let's briefly break it down. In verse 4, he says, Our being born again leads to an inheritance. Did you know that God is actively keeping an inheritance for you in heaven? What does this mean? Is heaven your inheritance by itself, or is there something more actually being kept in heaven also? What does it say? Does it say heaven is being kept for you, or does it say an inheritance is being kept in heaven for you? It says the latter. Understand, fellow believer, that you will receive rewards in heaven. We'll get more to that next week, but this is just everywhere in the New Testament. So please recognize that whatever good things are laid up in heaven for you, God is keeping them. God Himself is keeping your inheritance, and nothing and nobody can take away what God keeps. Hear that? Nothing and no one can take away what God is keeping. Not even you. And that's just how important you are to Him to think that the God of the universe has engaged Himself in the act of keeping your inheritance for you. Why does He do it? Because you are chosen. You are His child. You are loved with an everlasting love. Next, what can we say about this inheritance? Peter goes on, that it is is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. That your inheritance is imperishable means that nothing can destroy it. Your inheritance is kept by the one who cannot perish, and therefore it is imperishable just as He is. That your inheritance is undefiled means that even though you mess up sometimes, God doesn't take it out on what you have already laid up in heaven. Though you may tarnish your reputation on earth, your heavenly inheritance remains untarnished. In other words, once something is stored up in heaven for you, nothing can defile it. Isn't that what it says? I can think of how this might apply to someone who has really done great things for the kingdom of God, but also really messed up at some point like maybe King David, or certainly we could think of many modern examples. Now, there's still a reckoning of some kind at the beam of seat, the place where our deeds will be judged, and there are earthly consequences to our sin as well. But I think this text means that whatever's laid up in heaven for us by God cannot be defiled because He is keeping it. That our inheritance is unfading means it cannot lose value, not even a little bit. As the Bible indicates a few verses later, even gold can fade with enough time or under certain circumstances, but not our inheritance. It is unfading, kept by God. Now look at verse 5, which is sort of the how. Notice also that even though we've been talking about our eternal inheritance, what is really on God's mind is you, yourself. We are the ones being guarded. We are the ones being kept. Verse 5, who by God's power are being guarded. Wow who by God's power are being guarded through faith 
for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. When the Bible says something is being guarded by God's power, folks, that means it's eternally secure. God's power does not fluctuate like a California power grid, okay? When God's power guards something, that something perseveres. All this points back to what's already been said. That by God's power we're kept because it was by His power that we are chosen and by His power that we're born again. We do not save ourselves. We do not keep ourselves saved. But then, here comes that little word again. Faith. And I will tell you something others may want to slap down if they don't have enough things already. But I will say it anyway. That faith really is our part to play. I do believe we have a part, a necessary response. Faith is something God requires from us. This verse says we're being guarded through faith. Whose faith? Our faith. All right? So let's get real and deal with the hard stuff. Does this mean that if our faith fluctuates, God's power fluctuates? Does this mean that if we stop having faith, God's power shuts down and we're no longer kept? Honestly, that's the wrong question. I have said that your faith is the conduit. Sometimes I've said that faith is the key that unlocks the door of grace. Salvation is, after all, not only by grace, but also through faith. And so, I will not come up with a less important way to define faith, but instead I will ask whether true faith can come and go. That is the right question, and the answer is no. If you think true faith in Christ can come and go, you have not heard or have not believed what the Word of God has been teaching us this morning. God does not choose those who do not have true faith. God does not cause to be born again those who have some weak pseudo-faith that kind of, you know, might come and go. Get it? If you've been chosen and born again, that means you have saving faith. That is faith that endures. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Besides this, it is not faith that continues to save you because it was not faith that saved you in the first place. Do you remember me saying that? What did I say? I said it's not faith that saves you, but God. He saves us through faith. And not wishy-washy faith, but true faith, which the Spirit helps us to have in the first place. Faith that means the scales fell off completely from your eyes that you truly came to believe in a crucified and risen Lord Jesus Christ. When you truly believed upon the Lord Jesus, you do not later forget who He is and walk away. You cannot. Why? Because you are kept. Why are you kept? Because you are chosen and because God caused you to be born again. You cannot go back. Why not? Because of God. He chose you. He changed you. He keeps you. The only people He does not keep are those he never had. Let me close with a question or two. Has God chosen you? Has God chosen you? Has he caused you to be born again? If you would respond to his call by putting your faith in Jesus Christ, that means that he has chosen you. I'm not going to go back into the mind bender about how that all works in what order, but please hear me ask you personally, have you ever heard God calling you home? Is He calling today? Lay it down. Lay what down? Your life. Surrender to Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Trust that... Jesus paid for your soul on the cross and He earned eternal life for you when He rose. By faith, respond to God's call. Can you hear Him calling? He wants you to be one of His. You are here for a reason today. You've heard the gospel. If you're ready to respond, God has chosen you. Take His hand. Be born again, and you will never be the same. Would you pray with me?
Father, I pray for the one in this room right now to whom you are speaking. They would hear the call. As your word says, it is by faith that we respond, that someone would have just a moment of believing in you, of trusting that what Jesus did on the cross was enough of putting their life in your hands, trusting your forgiveness, allowing you. If there's fear, let there be fear. The fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. Is there anyone here today that would allow God to cause you to be born again? Are you afraid? You should be much more afraid of what happens if that doesn't happen. Let Him cause you to be born again. Let Him come into your life and make you a different person in Christ. Don't wait. We don't know how much time we have. God, thank you for this room full of people who have had this moment, but some have not. Let it be today. God does the work. Will you simply turn? And let him. Thank you, Lord, for our baptism service that's coming up. And for those who will take their stand and say, yeah, that's me. I've been born again. I've turned to Christ and he's come into my life. And I'm not perfect. I'm not there yet. It's a journey. It took Peter 30 years to get to the point of writing a letter like this. 30 years. But I'm ready to start following Jesus. Oh, I'm, I'm being born again. I've been born again, and now I'm not afraid to tell others. God, I pray that we'd have more who would let us know they're ready to do that. Thank you for the nine or ten or so that have already committed to that. We look forward to it. Lord, you are working in people's lives. Please don't stop. Don't let us get in the way, Lord, in all of our failures. In all of my words today, trying to deal with difficult, complicated theological issues, Lord, I pray that someone in the simplicity and a childlike faith, they got what mattered the most to put their trust in Jesus Christ by faith and know that you do the rest and that even you're there helping them make that decision. Thank you, God, for loving us so much, for coming to us, that even while we're sinners, you demonstrated your love for us by dying on a cross. Thank you for saving us. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to Go Church's weekly sermon podcast. If you enjoyed the sermon, be sure to rate and review us. If you want to learn more about the ministry of Go Church or catch up on previous sermons, check out our website, www.gochurchpnw.com. You can also connect with Go Church on Facebook and Instagram.